Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts that guide the global pork industry. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineWeb.com, your one-stop destination for all of the latest swine news, commentary, videos, events, and industry hot topics in animal health and feed. Log on to SwineWeb.com today. And Innovative Heating, the manufacturer of Hog Hearth, the most energy-efficient and only antimicrobial heat mat for the swine industry. Reduce maintenance costs and lower your electric bill today. For more information, visit hoghearth.com. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today we are joined by Dr. Gordon Spronk, who's the chairman of the board for Pipestone Holdings and serves on the board of directors for the National Pork Producers Council. Thanks for joining us today, Gordon. Thank you, Matthew. Great to be here. Though it's been a whirlwind over the last couple of months for pork producers, it's great to have you on to kind of talk about what the, the life of the American pork producers looked like, uh, where we're at today, where things are going, and, and I really appreciate your time. You might just start by giving us an introduction to, to you and your background and, and how you became a part of this, this great industry. Well, gosh, uh, thank you. Uh, I learned the love of agriculture from my father and uh, his father. So my grandfather immigrated from Northern Europe around the turn of the century, as most American agricultural families did. And you can go back to Northern Europe, which I have, and uh, see the family name there, still raising pigs. And you can trace back generations. uh, uh, The family argues whether it's 10 generations, 16 generations, but many generations uh, involved in agriculture, specifically raising pigs. So Pigs production runs in the family vein, in the blood veins, and, and so my father uh, and grandfather uh, always raised pigs, and so my brother and I, to this day, have taken over the family farm, and so not only am I uh, a farmer and own pigs with my brother with the family farm, but am also a veterinarian, uh, joined Pipestone here upon graduation from the College of Veterinary Medicine in 1981. And uh, from that day to this day, uh, have been in, uh, and actively involved uh, in swine medicine and swine production, not only in Minnesota, but regionally across North America and actually internationally in China and Mexico. Yeah, and based on everything that's, that's I guess, been going on through your career, I'm pretty sure that all those generations of pork producers dating all the way back to, to Europe would be, would be extremely proud uh, of everything that you've been able to accomplish and I'd really kind of like to dive into the whirlwind of the last couple of months. What is the the life of a American pork producer look like over these past two months? Well, you're you're talking, Matthew, about coronavirus, uh, coronavirus yes. in China, now coronavirus across the world, including North America and even locally here, and the impact of coronavirus due to the federal, state, and local interventions has changed. Uh, uh, the way we do business today as we speak. And there was, there was the first impact because of these interventions uh, by federal and state authorities where restaurants were closed and food services were closed. Well, that destroyed uh, 25% of our food service demand. So you saw a big drop in pricing since uh, most much of this activity 
in uh, here, it, it starts in January in Asia. Well, here it doesn't start till March. But then there's a second wave where the coronavirus interventions have closed packing plants. So we've got a topsy-turvy, upside-down world where it literally changes every day what the current status is. So in March, the 25% destruction of demand. Then in April and now into May, destruction of plant closures of up to, you know, 40 to even 45% of uh, plants being closed, which results in, which is difficult to really communicate, uh, the simplest way to say it is there's pigs left behind. They should have been slaughtered, but they weren't slaughtered. And they reach a tipping point once they achieve a maximum weight that a packer can handle. They go from a market value of whatever your current agreement is to zero value. And because there's zero value, then they face uh, the possibility of euthanasia. Well, that's never in the history, I don't think, of either American agriculture or international swine production. I've never seen anybody face the issue of having to euthanize uh, barn, barns full of pigs because they can't enter the food system. That is unprecedented. Yeah, and in addition to what we've been facing with the pigs themselves, you have the, the staffing concerns. And we've seen changes in visitation protocols, biosecurity. We've seen uh, different types of staffing approaches. What, what have you seen from the, the personnel standpoint? Well, on, on the, in the barn, I think is what you're talking about. Yes. In the barn, we have yet to have a positive uh, coronavirus, both here in North America and in China. I was just on, my, on the phone with staff today. We have yet to have a positive coronavirus at a farm in China. We have yet to have a packing plant in China close and not be able to take our pigs. So there's cultural differences is the point. But in the farm... COVID really hasn't had a big impact because we've done the normal interventions of that everybody's done of taking temperatures, uh, uh, think about, you know, keeping people safe. And uh, the other thing that I think it's important for your listeners to note that, you know, we can do everything we can in the workplace, but there's an intersection here and an interaction between the workplace and home. And sometimes the cultural impact of what happens at home impacts what's happening in, at work. And I think that's difficult for people to understand. No, that makes complete sense. It is hard, I think, for a lot of the American uh, population to understand what pork producers are going through. We are a little bit more disconnected now than ever before between uh, where food comes from and, and where it goes. And, and so there's just a lot of things that come out where pork producers are intentionally wanting people to know about things. And then people are almost misunderstanding uh, what, what's taking place. And so I think that communication has been very important. Uh, you, you guys have been doing a great job of getting out there and, and sharing what's been happening. Uh, what right now do you think uh, just the, the American people need to know it, it is going on? What, what did they need to, to best understand? Well, they need to understand that uh, whatever we face in pig production is directly due to uh, the COVID interventions. And I think one of the confusing things that happened is right away people want to talk about the structural problems or they want to fix other social, cultural issues. And the, the simple answer is no, no, no. Let's stay. The problem is the problem. The problem is, is that COVID interventions destroyed 25% of food service demand and then COVID interventions uh, closed our packing plants. And so we simply need our packing plants to be back open 
And once they're open, though, they need to understand it is, is that we've still got pigs left behind, and it's going to be difficult to catch back up. Uh, as we speak at the time of this interview, you know, it's between 2 million to 4 million, depending on whose model you're, you're uh, using or how you calculate demand or the slaughter versus capacity or year ago uh, slaughter. But somehow we need to get those 2 million pigs using as a placeholder for discussion. We need to get caught up, if you will. And we may not get caught up because today, at the time of this interview, while plants are opening back up and even 100% of the plants are operational, they're not 100% operational individually. Maybe only operating at 50 to 60, maybe 70% uh, capacity, and that's going to keep us uh, not only behind and preventing us from catching up, but it's going to add more pigs, like people getting off the escalator. There's no place to get off the escalator. So when we look at everything going on and all that you're facing, from a sow liquidation standpoint, what are things looking like within the U.S. right now? Well, our, we are liquidating sows. The issue there is, is we can't liquidate sows fast enough. There's only limited slaughter capacity for sows. And if there was extra capacity, it would be going to these heavy pigs, if you will, or overweight pigs. So we, we face the, uh, to use a bad example, it's the Chinese finger trap, where you put your fingers in, but you can't extract yourself uh, without getting caught. <laughs> That's a really good point. I, I guess, I'll hop over to China real quick. When we look at everything we're combating within COVID-19, you recently had to co uh, combat ASF. How has what's gone on with African swine fever and everything that that, that did to the, the, the Chinese swine uh, population impacted or informed or prepared you and your team for what's going on right now? Yeah, there's a couple. That's a great question. So ASF was introduced or at least no, uh, announced in China in August of 2018. And so on our farms and on our clients' farms in China, we have faced ASF and we've depopulated herds. And so we've faced mass euthanasia, I think is what you're talking about, where Right. You've got thousands of pigs, and you've got to decide what to do with them. So the, the summary there is is that there's a good way to do it, and there's a bad way to do it. And it's given us the experience to say, you know, let's do this respectfully, let's do this carefully, let's plan it, and let's make sure we do it appropriately. I think it's important to, to also note uh, the cultural differences, both ASF and uh, coronavirus in China. So in China, uh, our farms there, we've got no, uh, or ha we have no known cases of coronavirus on our farms. Well, part of that could be just the way that we culturally run those farms. In China, every pig farm has a dormitory right on site. So we've had some, some staff since January when the coronavirus was first reported in China, they've been on the farm ever since. So we're, we're, you know, approaching three, four months, uh, almost five months now, that staffers have not been able to leave the farm, but neither has anybody been able to come in. Well, that's isolated that population of people and staff. Well, that's prevented coronavirus from entering the, entering the farm. So hmm. there's so many cultural differences, but the viruses are the same, right? Uh, ASF here is the same as ASF. If we had it here, it would be the same as ASF in China. And Corona here is the same as Corona in China with all the cultural uh, differences uh, from around the world.
Now, when we look at the just the challenge of euthanasia and the fact that you have a whole bunch of pigs that have to be euthanized and it has to be done by by somebody, there's a there, there's a challenge there. I mean, it's not easy for someone to go out and do that. It's not. It, it's the complete opposite of what we are trained and taught to do. We're supposed to be herdsmen, caretakers of pigs and give them the best, very best possible life. And now we have to go out and euthanize. Uh, I know Dr. Mary Betrell talked about the killing caring paradox at the welfare symposium last year, talking about how your job is to go out there and take care of these animals. But yet sometimes you, you have no other choice. What, what is that? What is that like? I mean, what are you guys doing? What have you seen from a, from a mental health aspect of, of euthanasia and on, on just making sure that, that people have the um, resources they need when going through something like this? That's a, it's a great uh, question, Matthew, uh, because in agriculture, we, we deal with life and we deal with death. We deal with the seasons. We're in the springtime now, so we look forward to planting but we also know the cycles of agriculture that we do that for the, the harvest. And so in agriculture, yes, we have pets, but we also have animals that we eat for food, but we respect them while we take care of them. And that respect of animal husbandry that we not only are trained professionally, uh, academically, but it's also uh, just the culture and the legacy of uh, just good animal care. And what you're referring to is, is it's very, very difficult for a farmer or a caretaker or an owner to make that decision when faced, faced with not just one animal, but in this particular case, it could be thousands, if not millions of animals we may face. How do we do that respectfully? How do we handle that uh, emotionally uh, with our staff? How do we handle that even spiritually? There's a spiritual aspect here that we need to do what's good, what's best. And so I think what you're referring to is make sure we encourage not only any owner or any staff person to lead their staff well, lead their family well, but reach out to resources. Uh, we, we in Minnesota are blessed with uh, Ted Matthews. He's on the, the uh, state of Minnesota Department of Agriculture Mental Health. Uh, you can call him at any time. I think I gave you the number, uh, Matthew, uh, before we went on air here. Uh, you can call him any time. And so if you want to give that, if Ted's given permission. Uh, if you have an issue with mental health, call Ted Matthews would be one resource you could reach out to. Yeah, sometimes just talking about the things you're facing and uh, just thinking through them can, can make the biggest difference. All of us are facing unprecedented challenges right now. And going out there and talking through things, maybe everything that, that somebody might need to, to kind of just get through what we're facing right now. Uh, collaboration through these issues is in every way uh, what we need right now more than anything. And, and mental health is, is as important as anything. Uh, when we look at the next few weeks, I know you said it's changing day by day. There's talks that meatpacking plants are getting back online. And if we're not looking at the next few weeks, maybe next few months, and you said maybe we're two to four million ahead behind, how long do you think it's going to be until we get caught up, if we get caught up? Well, you know, unfortunately, it's in this particular instance, I need to be like the weatherman, right? He gets a, a new opportunity every morning. Yeah. 
or every evening to change his forecast. So you're giving me one shot. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to make a base case uh, scenario and a best case scenario. Well, the best case scenario means that we'll come online fairly quickly and, uh, you know, hopefully by maybe July 1, we're 100% of the plants open and each plant is at 100% capacity. Well, the worst case actually has that going all the way out to August, September, meaning that because of the federal, state, and local interventions that the packing plants have to put in place for, call it social distancing or the PPE, the, the, the personal protection equipment, simply slow things down. So it's really going to be a matter of, well, how quickly can they adapt under these new requirements and get back to 100% capacity if they can at all? And so it's really hard to predict, and it's going to be variable plant by plant. It's going to vary state by state. And so I think it's one of these situations, Matthew, you literally got to recalculate every day. Understood. I guess one thing that might be helpful to listeners is when we look at some of the interventions that are having to be made on meatpacking plants, uh, what might be surprisingly different from what, what I guess the general population is aware of social distancing and, and PPE? Are there other things that they are having to adhere to? Uh, or is it just the fact that there's so many people, there's so many processes, and that social distancing and everything else that goes with that is so difficult? Well, you know, there's a lot, this is a whole, we could spend a whole other session just yes. on this, uh, Matthew, but I, I think there's two things that are important to uh, point out. Uh, a, a slaughter facility, while it has a lot of people, it's really no different than any other uh, facility with a lot of people in it, right? Uh, while they work at, in closer proximity, uh, I, you know, if you've been in a packing plant, I, I've been in many packing plants, uh, it, it, there, there's ways that you can uh, put the proper procedures in place, most of which had already been done. I think what you may want to make your listeners aware of is, is never underestimate the interaction of your workspace and your community. And your community would include your home conditions. So, in other words, a owner or a supervisor at a plant can put everything in place, but then when that employee or that staffer goes home and ignores everything, and maybe, you know, maybe their, their working or their living conditions uh, are such that, uh, you know, they, they're ignoring everything, well, never underestimate that interaction. So I think we really need to be careful about assuming that, well, the problem's all in the packing plant. It may not be. It's a really good point. Yeah, we have our own social responsibilities and and nobody can, I guess, force everybody to do uh, what we all might consider to be the right thing. And, and even the right thing anymore is, is kind of split. When we look at um, the American pork supply chain, long-term, futuristic, you, you're the weatherman, but you could be completely wrong and it's okay. How might, how might this be changing the American pork supply chain? Uh, what what do you think might come out of this uh, based on everything we've gone through maybe two, three, four years from now? Well, I, I think there's got to be three big decisions uh, that we're going to face. Number one, do we really want to depend on exports or not? Right now, a third of our product has to leave. Well, if we're with the geopolitics and with, with the impact of uh, viruses like this, 
do we really want to depend on exports uh, and uh, th that risk? Second, these the competitive advantage of the American uh, swine industry are these large, double-shift, very efficient plants. But there's a flaw now that we've exposed, or a potential flaw, in the situation we've, we've just exposed, and maybe, well, maybe there's a different size plant and a different structure. Maybe it's a smaller plant that fits in the community. Maybe it's a, uh, a double-shift plant with a half the size of employees, more, more like the Danish model. And then third, is it possible that maybe we should rethink of the entire structure and the Danes may have this right, where the ownership uh, of the uh, chain, because of the access we now have and price discovery, maybe the pig producer needs to go further up the chain, if you will, and own more of the Packer processor. And that model has been started by, that's the Triumph model with uh, the producers of Bob Christensen and the group he led uh, 10 years ago. It's now the Holstone model of uh, the Pipestone producers owning the plant out of Nebraska, that may be the future of the industry. That sure is what it's sounding like when you're talking with pork producers, it, just more collaboration and, and diversification of ownership. And um, when we wrap, to wrap things up, if you had a golden nugget that you could share with the U.S. swine industry or the various stakeholders within the industry, what would that be? You know, it, it, it's a great question. If you're going to share one thing, what would you share? I, I could share that, hey, listen, recognize that you're part of an international industry. If you stay at home, you just get to read one chapter of the book. But if you travel internationally to see how pork is produced around the world, well, you get to read more of the book. But I, think, I really think, uh, Matthew, what I'd really like to leave our listeners with is what one of my mentors uh, said, taught me a long time ago. He said, you know... Uh, it's the three P's, never push, never presume, never pretend. And what I think he meant, means is, is, you know, don't pretend it's better than what it really is. You know, that, let's just face reality. Never push, well, you, if you have a position, simply state it, and you don't need to convince somebody uh, uh, else of your position. And then never presume. Never presume you know it all. Never presume you know exactly the shoes that the other person that you're facing, that you know what they're walking in. So I think that might be a golden nugget for your listeners. I appreciate it. That is a great golden nugget. And I would second the traveling and seeing other systems throughout the world on, in regards to pork production. It is eye-opening. It does influence perspective. And uh, I really thank you for sharing your expertise and your knowledge on the Popular Pig Podcast today and wish you the very best through all of this. Thank you and thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. Therefore, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com and subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineTech. Leverage the power of computer vision, voice recognition, and real-time behavioral monitoring to reduce mortalities and labor inefficiencies in the farrowing house. 
For more information, visit swinetechnologies.com.